Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. At Firehouse Subs, a portion of every purchase helps provide life-saving equipment to first responders. We make our subs differently because our subs can make a difference every day. That's why we're bringing back our daily medium sub special. Enjoy a different handcrafted medium sub at a special price for every day of the week. From Meatball Monday to Italian Sunday. Get it for a limited time, only at Firehouse Subs. Tap the banner now to start your pickup order. here in the network this time with samantha is it foul is that how you say the no, last that's right like wow with an f wow for foul that's mm-hmm. what we're doing here <laughs> that thank you for being on today yeah thank you Derry, and i appreciate you hosting yeah no problem i found uh i think i saw you on kitcaster that's where i saw you on uh because i'm on there too yeah, yeah, that's actually a Denver local company. They uh their offices are just about, you know, 3 miles from my condo and uh Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, it turns out, you know, kind of like in the we we all discover out in the distributed workforce that, you know, we're in the the wide world of web, but we all have real identities and real businesses and real hometowns and all that and it's so funny like, you know, how those paths can cross, you know. Yeah, I know so many amazing people from Denver, like just good people in that yeah. city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually lived uh, like the digital nomad lifestyle, you know, kind of like leaning into the freedom that comes along with, you know, being self-employed and, you know, being an entrepreneur in a distributed workforce, kind of, you know, digital marketing, content marketing, um, technical writing, you know, that's something you can do from anywhere. So, um, yeah, for for the first few years of my freelancing career, um, I lived the digital nomad life and I just crisscrossed America, you know, me and the Jeep and the dog and the laptop. That was the whole story. And uh, I came through Denver many times, you know, in my, uh, gosh, probably four or five times across country. And uh, every time I would stop, you know, I'd make a couple friends. I'd, you know, have some fun, you know, just like, you know, get around, see the town, you know, go to the mountains and all that. And uh, it's so funny because, you know, the more time I spent here in Denver, the more I really uh, came to be very, very, very attached to the community here, right? It went from being like isolated friends to like, a whole community of people that rock climb or do yoga or, you know, like, you know, are committed to the environment and sustainability yeah. or whatever. And it's, it is, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a place that is, uh, it's truly home to me. You know, it's not where I'm from originally, but it's where I'm from now. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of great people and the Kitcaster folks have been really awesome 
and they're always feeding me people. And then I look on the site, I'm like, man, this, this looks interesting, especially if you're, I think I got this right, kind of your discussions related to, you know, humans evolving and technology and how we create so much technology and those things. Yeah, yeah. Specifically how we co-evolve. Like that's a little bit my just kind of like intellectual curiosity, right? That we as a human species, as living organisms have been creating technologies kind of forever. I don't know, right? Like certainly since before the beginning of recorded history, right? You know, even smashing things with rocks and what have you. Um, And so I think that it's really interesting how we invent this, you know, this, this, this genre of, of items, products and services we call technology, right? And then it changes us and who we are and how we interact with the world in a way that causes us to need to create more technological solutions. Um, and I just think that that's just kind of such an interesting, um, you know, sort of like cat and mouse game, right? Um, we're always just kind of getting ahead of ourselves and then correcting our errors and then getting ahead of ourselves again. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you what have you seen that has become maybe well let's do two things. We're gonna play a game, two things. What has been most challenging and what has been most rewarding about this uh coevolution? Well, um I think that the challenges and the rewards are pretty much the flip side of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, overcoming the challenges is really where the rewards lie. And um, so I am, uh, when people ask me, what do you do? Or, you know, I, I introduce myself and I say, I'm a writer. You know, hi, my name's Samantha. I'm a professional writer, right? Um, my business cards don't say, I'm Samantha, professional writer. My business cards say CEO, right? As CEO of Axiom Communications. It's a technical writing and content marketing company. So I have been a professional writer since before anyone knew anything about my perspectives or my authorship or anything else, right? You know, I started in, uh, you know, doing writing for enterprise. I write web copy and blog articles and technical documents and policy and procedure and, you know, all sorts of things, you name it. So, you know, in the challenge of starting a career as a ghostwriter, um, you really f- struggle to, I think, at least I did, you know, to, to find my voice, to find, find my platform, right? You know, I'm writing constantly, but I'm writing for other people, right? I'm just really conveying other people's ideas into, you know, the written and spoken word. Um, and so that was certainly the first challenge that I had to overcome was just really, uh, you know, creating a platform for myself. Um, nobody, you know, handed it to me. There was not just like a big opportunity that came down. Um, it's truly been, uh, you know, a process of years of, you know, starting my first medium blog and then transitioning to WordPress and, you know, working on SEO and getting the digital marketing. And then, you know, finally, the book is a culmination of all of these things that I've been doing, you know, kind of marrying that, like, you know, the fact that I've been a professional writer for many years with, you know, now I'm just kind of like finding my own space as a an author, um, it's it's been just a series of daily challenges that you know I've had to overcome. Just kind of like you know, with that um, intermingling of running a business and and uh, you know um, pushing forward with my passion projects. So, what do you think have been the ba- the greatest kind of innovations in humanity and technology together at the same time? So, 
my book is very much about um, the a genre of technology called decentralized technology, right? And mm. so I try to get, um, I, I don't I try not to get too far into the weeds, right? But the book is called Be Decent Environmental Activism 2.0. And it's about using decentralized technology as a tool for environmental protection in places where maybe our government and our economy doesn't do such a great job with it, right? You know, like climate change and, you know, like the localized pollution that you get from activities like mining and like oil and gas extraction and stuff, right? Like, you know, these are just kind of like natural consequences of, of the system that we've built, right? Um, and that's kind of like an example, you know, going back to that cat and mouse game, right? We've gotten ahead of ourselves, right? We've, we've built a society that requires an infrastructure that we need, but that infrastructure is also unfortunately slowly killing our planet <laughs> day by day, right? Yeah. And so now, like, you know, out comes the cat, right? We have to figure out uh, how to use these same tools that, you know, we've been like the same process um, to to save ourselves, you know, dig ourselves out of the hole that we've put ourselves in. Uh, and I think that is uh, the entire genre of uh, decentralized technology. That is technology that does not require a centralized source, right? It doesn't require an Apple, Apple or a Microsoft or a Google or a Facebook, right? It's, uh, it exists because it exists. It's been released out into the, into the universe of the World Wide web and people have picked it up. Right. Interesting. I don't think I've heard it termed that way. Decentralized on that. Can you dive deeper a little bit more into that and kind of the differences between that? I know you mentioned a little bit, maybe a little bit deeper into the differences between the two even more. Sure, sure. And, you know, I have to disclaim my uh, lack of background in computer science. Um, I actually came to this world uh, as an environmentalist. I have a law degree uh, as well as an LLM in environmental law and an energy regulation master's. Uh, and so, you know, the, the questions of how do we protect our planet while also maintaining a healthy and robust society um, have been in the forefront of my mind you know, my entire adult life, right? Like, you know, ever since I was in college, it's just something like, oh, you know, how are we going to fix this? Um, I came to uh, learn a lot about technology as a technical writer. Um, you know, again, because my technical writing company, Axiom Communications, it's in the B2B space. You know, we really specialize in things that are, you know, very complicated, you know, advanced technologies, regulated industries, complex manufacturing, like stuff that's hard to explain, right? So I just had the wonderful opportunity through my ghostwriting career um, to learn a lot about, you know, cutting edge computing um, that specifically is in the fields of blockchain technology, which is where all the cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and everything like that comes from, right? Like that's a category of decentralized technology. It just exists, right? Without anyone necessarily having to, you know, install a bunch of server banks and build a whole building around it and hire a bunch of engineers and, and all that, right? Like, you know, a, a, some anonymous person or group of people named Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin, invented the protocols behind blockchain technology, and they released it out to the internet like, here you go, world, enjoy, right? Right, right. Um, that's a prime example of decentralized technology, right? Like this is not, you know, if your, your iPhone has literally hundreds of pieces of intellectual property in it, each of which are you know, fer fervently defended by, you know, the, the Apple Corporation and all of their many, many attorneys. Um, 
that is an example of centralized technology, right? Like that simply would not exist uh, without all of the infrastructure that this large centralized institution, the Apple company, has built. Um, blockchain technology and, and, you know, the fintech revolution and, you know, all that, that has occurred literally like in a way that's weirdly analogous to what I think is like, you know, like Homer and the Iliad, right? Like somebody yeah. created this great thing. It's blockchain technology. And we still don't know who it is. I mean, there's theories. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know who that is. Yeah. Wow. So what are some other decentralized technologies that we can, or that, that may be on the horizon in the future or that are similar to this? Yeah. So, um, you know, I really just want to encourage everyone to think about the digital devices that they interact with as mm. powerful tools for change, right? Yeah. You don't, I mean, like I try, I try as much as like, you know, we've already been talking about like blockchain and like, you know, artificial intelligence will come up, I'm sure, you know, but really that's stuff that's really relegated to the tech world, right? There's computer mm -hmm. scientists and, and, and developers and software engineers who really like that's their that, you know, that's their bread and butter. But every single one of us has a smartphone. We have a laptop. We have an iPad. We might have a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa. We might have a Samsung smart fridge or a smart TV. We might have a Nest uh, that, you know, makes, our, makes our, our climate control and our home systems operate more efficiently and more comfortably. Each one of those pieces of technology can be used to be, you know, as, as a platform for activism and advocacy for any issue. Um, my issue is environmentalism, right? So, yeah. you know, returning to, um, you know, the, the, the Google Home or, or Amazon Alexa, right? So um, Amazon Alexa, obviously, it was created by, you know, the Amazon company. And, you know, this is sort of like, that, there's the centralization there, right? So it's an Amazon product, and it's owned and branded by them. But there is an independent community of developers who have created tens of thousands of Alexa applications, any of which um, can be used for, you know, pro-social or environmental applications, right? You know, it's really more so taking kind of having the presence of mind and having the awareness to even think about the fact that you could use your Alexa to, you know, like improve your indoor air quality or reduce your carbon footprint or, you know, cut your fuel usage. You know, it's, 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 it's more so I'm just trying to introduce that discussion um, just so people think about it, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. You know, Samantha, I'm going to have you turn down your mic just or volume just a little bit for me there. Um, what do you think the hardest thing about having, what's the hardest thing about having these discussions with people in this, this day and age? You know, I think it's interesting because the environmental activism space has always um, been confronted by the profound question of, so what, who cares, right? Hmm. Uh, that's always been a, a major hurdle, you know, just over the course of the past, you know, like 20 years as I was a young person who really just deeply cared about plants and animals and nature and, you know, grow yeah. up to an adult who continues to deeply care about such things. <laughs> it's, that's always the challenge is uh, how should I, why should I care about climate change when climate change is a global issue and I'm just worried about keeping my family safe and healthy and fed? Mm-hmm. 
And I think that it's just so critical to bridge that gap because um, it's really easy to experience a disconnect from um, the, the fact that we foundationally all rely on nature. Um, in ways that, you know, it's easy to forget. Um, electricity, uh, clean water, clean air, sanitation, all of these things that are fundamental to human well-being and fundamental to a functioning society, right? We don't think, we don't question whether or not we're going to be able to wake up in the morning and, and use a functioning toilet, right? You know, we don't wake up in the morning and you know, wonder if the shower is going to make hot water or not. Like, no, like this is just something that we take a granted, take for granted because we've built the systems and infrastructures necessary to, for that just to be in the background of our daily lives. And the truth of the matter is if we do not do something about the climate change, environmental pollution and biodiversity loss that is continuing to occur at increasing rates, these things are all going to go away. Uh, because fundamentally, they do rely on natural systems and natural services that we all, all need. And, you know, another point that I really try to push home whenever I'm talking to anyone about environmental issues is that this is not a sacrifice. Conservation doesn't mean you're going with less, right? You know, and so the the bridge between environmentalism and technology is in the world of efficiency, right? Everybody loves better efficiency. It makes things happen faster and cheaper and better. Um, and that's really kind of like, you know, where I'm trying to really shine the light on, um, you know, we have so much room for improvement here in the world of, you know, our environmental impacts just by using the technology that we already have. That's interesting. I, I think it's, I'm very much in your camp of things. Um, and my wife certainly is. You guys sound very similar about caring about animals and planets since like being little kids. Yeah. Well, I think I've come around on that much later in my life, but uh, I think I've come to the same point, but it always is shocking when there's very little consideration given to those things being that this is the only place we know that we can, we can live at this point, you know? Yeah, I, I totally get it. I mean, you know, I definitely have lived times in my life where, you know, struggling with finances, struggling with health, struggling with things that just seem so much more immediately pressing to my survival, Right. that it just seems like too much of a faraway issue to really take up my time and my energy. And, and I really, you know, want to, people to see that it's not as far away as they might think. Yeah, I think that people leave it to other generations to say, well, they'll take care of it and those things. But what do you think an area of environmentalism is that people have the hardest time with uh, accepting or doing anything about? Uh, I would, the first thing that comes to mind is environmental justice. Um, environmental justice is, uh, you know, a field of environmentalism that overlaps with social justice, um, and discrimination. I it, never heard of this uh, environmental oh, justice. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating field and it's, uh, it emerges out of the fact that, um, polluting industries tend to locate in predominantly minority and low income areas. And so as a result, uh, predominantly minority and low income communities are disproportionately impacted by localized pollution. The smog that comes out of factories, the questionable chemicals that come out of fracking, you know, uh, operations, you know, coal combustion, power plants, mine, mining operations, all of these activities actually generate 
massive amounts of of incredibly hot hazardous and toxic materials. I'm talking like arsenic and lead and mercury and you know volatile organic compounds and PFOAs. Like you could, I mean, there's some nasty, nasty stuff that's just being kind of like sprinkled over these predominantly low income and minority neighborhoods. Um, to a degree that, you know, once you, it's it, there's always this economic argument of, well, we put those factories there because that's where land is cheap. Right. And so it's really that's a tough space because, you know, it's hard to get people behind social justice, I think, in the first place. Right. I think that, you know, there's been that is not my world. And I would never, you know, take the spotlight away from the people that are making great strides in that. But, you know, I think that we've really seen so much happening um, in terms of social activism and just kind of seen how much pushback, um, you know, that tends to elicit. Uh, and so when you introduce that, um, you know, the issues of, you know, racial discrimination, financial discrimination, um, you know, and just kind of like systemic injustice in how we pollute, um, you get a lot of pushback. And, and again, especially because there's like sort of like, I think a lot of people like to uh, turn to the economic argument because it seems objective, right? It seems like you can explain what you can rationalize away uh, you know, the fact that there's more black and brown children out there with asthma, right, than there are white kids uh, just because of this this issue. Um, but to me, that just it, it, it just it just doesn't sit right, you know. And so it's that's a tough conversation to have just because it um, unlike things like, you know, the increased deployment of renewable energy, where there's an environmental benefit and an economic benefit and a social benefit. It's a win, win, win. Nobody's going to argue about those sorts of things absent kind of like, you know, the details about how we do it and why and when and how much it costs. Right. But when you're actually talking about larger issues of environmental justice, you get it, it, it can, uh, it can be, it can really get derailed, right? Because you don't really have as much, you know, it, it gets very emotional and there's a lot of subjectivity. Yeah. Um, and, um, I think that we're going to see a lot of positive progress in this regard, you know, kind of to your point, Darren, about how, you know, kind of leaving this for future generations, not only do the millennials and the Gen Z generations and the, and the kids that are coming up after us care more about climate change than ever before, care more about fairness and equality and compassion than ever before. But we're also just honest to God, the most diverse generations that we've ever had in America. Uh, 44% of millennials, uh, you know, just according to a, re a research uh, study done by the Pew Research Center recently, identify as a racial minority. And that means that slowly, the minority is becoming the majority, right? You know, this right. is Gen Zers are going to only be more. You know, this is this is only a trend that goes that goes into one direction. And so, I think that um, even though things like you know social justice, environmental justice, you know, climate change, pollution, it's some heavy stuff. Like, it's really not going in a good direction. Like, you know, I'm really a, an advocate about all of these things because I'm truly concerned about our survival, right? Like, I really think that we could have some unintended consequences that can truly, um, you know, uh, put us into like a catastrophic state of events. Um, but the truth of the matter is there just is an uprising of people, um, you know, by the whole cohort, right? Like the people, um, millions and millions of young people, uh, you know, are so passionate about this that I am just 100% sure that, you know, every year, um, like as, you know, more of, you know, kind of like 
progressive thought makes it into our leadership as younger people, like, you know, year over year become more involved in the direction of, you know, our country and our policies and and our planet. Um, I'm really hopeful. And so again, this is why I'm not... Uh, my my writing is about solutions, right? It's it's not about problems. We know the problems. They've they've kind yeah. of been swept under the rug, and they're really bad. It's it's scary and catastrophic. Um, so yeah, like I mean, we have to talk about that to the extent that you know we have to be able to deploy actionable solutions. Um, but uh, it's it's possible. It's it's out there. So you know, another example. So uh, rainforest, right? You know, the the rainforest mm-hmm. has um, been being cut down. <laughs> pretty consistently, uh, you know, over the past generations for, for all sorts of reasons. It's, um, and it's, it's incredibly troubling, not only because the the Amazon, well, just talking about the Amazon rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, of course, you know, um, provides a very important role for our hydrological system. You know, it keeps the, the rain flow and the, you know, the, the water purification globally, um, going. Um, but you know, it's, it's being cut down piece by piece, uh, for, for logging, for development, for, you know, all sorts of things like that. And that's really tough because not only are we eating away at the natural services that the Amazon rainforest provides, which we can't replace. Um, but we're also really, uh, kind of shooting ourselves in the foot a bit in terms of the opportunities that could come out of the, all of the biodiversity that's there, um, only a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. I want to say like, you know, 1% of the of the species in the Amazon rainforest have been assessed for potential medical applications. And what they discover is phenomenal. I mean, like, you know, there are guaranteed in the Amazon rainforest right now cures to diseases and conditions and and things that cause real human suffering and we just haven't found them yet right um instead right we're we're we because you know our economic and our social pressures are pushing us in that direction we're cutting it down so what can we do about that there's lots of things we can do so we can deploy uh devices right you know there's this thing like you know in technology parlance called the internet of things Mm-hmm. It's very cool, right? You know, it's kind of about how, uh, you know, just like a network of smartphones can be like, you know, like a, its own little internet, right? And so this is really, um, the Internet of Things is making a big presence in environmental protection, and environmental activism, because the sensor technology and the wireless connection technology has been so good that you can actually go into the Amazon rainforest. You can go into the protected natural, uh, you know, the the national parks of, of uh, you know, ki- uh, of, you know, Africa's protected natural parks, like, and you can put biometric tracking devices on animals, you can put uh, sensor technologies in their habitats, you can improve monitoring and tracking not only of natural resources, but also illegal logging and poaching, which is a major problem in these areas. Um, and just really, you know, shore up like, you know, improve the, uh, the protection that is already in place by laws that say you're not supposed to do these things, right? You know, people are getting away with it. So this is kind of like a way that we can um, all do our part, right? You know, by engaging with these technologies and, and introducing them as more of an everyday thing um, that we can just kind of see them built out in, in green tech applications. You know what? That's amazing. And also, I think you hit on a larger point that I'm not sure is being discussed as much, which is that as we have more and more younger people who care about the environment and social 
issues, eventually those people will become leaders, uh, politicians, uh, CEOs. And I think they're going to change how things are done in the world. I mean, in, in the end, it's, you know, people can get things done, but when you start getting people who are passionate about these things in power positions, and the cost for them is very high in, in sense of like, we need to get this done. I think we're in this fight right now against very old ideologies versus very young, more progressive thinking. And as you said, I think the country is just getting more and more progressive in my mind and more diverse um, ethnically. And that's not going to change. That's just going to keep happening. So I think it's in many ways a time game and that kind of the older way of thinking is dying. And usually when something starts to fade, this scratch is really hard to stay relevant in the end times. And I think that's what we're seeing is a lot of scratching to stay relevant to old ideas because they see that new ideas are, is like a, it's a tsunami is coming and it's only just a matter of time. And I mean, that's just my personal point of view, but I think it speaks to your commentary about millennials, Gen Z and the whole deal is like, as, as that, that population becomes more mature and gets into higher level positions, they're going to make choices that are related to uh, sustainability and, you know, and, and eradicating as much as possible racial injustice and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be looking for solutions. And these are my people, right? Like these are the people (laughs) that I'm talking to. This is my community and this is my audience. And, you know, I'm not out there talking about the problems because you know what, we've, we've grown up with them, right? We've seen it. It, The, uh, um, the, trauma of living through uh, climate change, the trauma of living through, uh, you know, kind of like the, the systemic injustice that we're seeing that, you know, is, is being popularized, you know, across like, you know, social media and, you know, being publicized and really seeing that um, it's real. It's real for all of us. And it, I don't think that I could play any role, any beneficial role by, uh, you know, providing a plant f- platform for, for amplifying those challenges. I am providing a platform for amplifying solutions. Um, those solutions, from my perspective, uh, you know, are going to come out of advanced digital technologies that exist in this decentralized form, because nobody is going to, right, if you can't, if if there's something inside your iPhone that Apple owns that could save the planet, well, tough cookies because Apple owns it. And if you want to use it to save mm-hmm. the planet, you'll have to ask them, right? That's not the way tech, that's, you know, sort of how we've grown up with technology over the last generation, but the pendulum is swinging in the opposite way where since we've had an entire generation of, of young people these days that have grown up with an iPad in their hands, that have grown up on the internet, that know C plus coding, that, you know, are for, like, this is a second language to them, that understand how social media works and the algorithms and how to work with all of that. Um, th- these people are incredibly well positioned to take all of these technologies and apply them for solutions. And just as I am in my enterprise role, where I kind of see myself as a go-between between between like that world of the ivory tower, where like, you know, research and development is happening and cutting edge technologies are being developed um, and kind of the rest of the world that are just browsing on Instagram, right? You know, like it's, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm really just trying to open people's eyes to how much power they already have. That the Mm. fact that our 
systems, that our political and economic systems have failed us so catastrophically when it comes to climate change, biodiversity loss, environmental pollution, as well as many, many other things that, you know, again, are just not my, not my platforms to, to promote, um, that that's wrong and that is crappy, but you know what? We don't need them to fix it. We can fix it ourselves. I love that. I absolutely love that idea. And I think just people just, they don't, they're not getting this information all the time that they can be the solution and that there are many ways that you can many game the system to create those solutions for that. I love that. I just love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I think that, um, it's, it's, it's always tough to have a conversation about the environment and about environmental activism yes. and, and not go down to like the doom and gloom path. Right. Mm-hmm. I am a characteristic optimist. You can't stop me. <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. help myself. Mm-hmm. I truly, truly, truly feel positively about the way that the world is going, even though we're in such a tough spot right now. I am just characteristically, unapologetically positive and hopeful about where we're going from here. And it's, again, you know, because I I live in the world of solutions and we have so many incredible, powerful tools already at our disposal in our hands literally every day. Um, We just kind of haven't thought so much about using them in that regard, I think. It's really amazing as on this podcast, I get to talk to a lot of people and doing things like you're doing and and sustainability and stuff. I'm really fascinated by it. I had a guy on, uh, Eddie Badrina, who's the CEO of Eden uh, Garden, Eden Green, sorry. And that's vertical farming technology. And I was blown away by the future of oh, uh, yeah. things like this and how the ability to change the world is already here. It's yeah. already here. It's just the messaging getting out there, the education, and uh, another guy, I think that really, and a person who's really passionate about it, what do you think it is about this generation that seems to care more? I mean, it's not like it's new because there have been people in the 70s and things of that nature who really cared about the environment, but it felt more fringe in a sense, or people looked at it as like, oh, these are hippies or they're you know tree huggers or whatever. But it feels like there's a real sense in these generations now that it's a larger movement. Oh, and there is actually uh, a real answer to that. I, you know, of course, there's a real answer. I, I believe. Well, yeah. My, like an <laughs> Let's answer. get the real answer. <laughs> the real answer. So, um, and you know, I, um, it's it, 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 you know, all of our perspectives are, are colored by our experiences, right? And so, I have a background and training in environmental law. Um, and so, to answer your question, in terms of like, okay, like why did we have this sort of like countercultural movement that emerged in the sixties and the seventies that kind of like went away. And now it's almost like we're seeing it reemerge, right? Well, uh, it's because not trusting the government is a proudly held American tradition, right? You know, (laughs) we started this country because we didn't trust the government and we still don't, you know, and um, there's been kind of like an uh, ebbing and flowing of all that. So um, in the world of environmental protection, uh, things 
right now are really bad with respect to biodiversity loss and climate change and, and pollution. But uh, a generation ago, they were so bad that like la- lakes were so polluted that were, they were catching on fire and burning for several days. Uh, air pollution would set- settle so heavily over industrialized areas in valleys in, you know, in, in that geological space that you wouldn't, it would, it's the literal pea soup fog that you couldn't see through, like a full whiteout just from, from, from factory smog. Because there was no national system of, of environmental protection at all until 1969. There, uh, it, the only environmental laws that existed were local or state, and that creates an unfortunate incentive to allow people to produce, pollute so that you attract polluting industries for your tax revenues, right? And so this is why we've had, uh, you know, now today we have a great diversity in terms of like how states respond to polluting industries. You have California that says, absolutely no, we will have even our, mo- we'll have more restrictive air emission standards than anywhere else ever. Uh, deal with it if you want to do business in California versus, you know, places that, you know, like Alaska or, you know, like that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Wyoming that are a little bit more, you know, pro um, pro resource extraction industry, right? Like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll provide incentives for the same thing that California is taxing, you know? So, up until 1969, that was it, right? There wasn't a single federal law that said you're not allowed to dump gasoline into the water. You're not allowed to spew toxins into the air, right? It was only up to state and, and local towns to to decide this. And often they said, no, it's a, it's a okay if you pay us in, you know, such and such amount of money. Um, this all changed largely as a response um, to the counterculture movement. Which, oddly enough, caught the attention of President Richard Nixon, who, uh, before he left office, um, was able to uh, sign into law the National Environmental Policy Act in 1969. The first ever national environmental law that was actually like, oh, hey, you know, let's do something about that. That law didn't even say people aren't allowed to pollute. It just said that the federal government has to do reports on on polluting things that it does, right? So it's just a tiny, tiny, like, okay, fine. This tiny, tiny foot in the door in terms of like, hey, maybe we should do something about, you know, the fact that like, you know, bodies of water have such a huge sheen of of oil and gas on top of them that they're becoming flammable, right? Um, So the National Environmental Policy Act uh, was the first one. Over the course of the next 12 years, so between 1969 and 1981, we passed so the National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, and CERCLA, which is a long acronym, and I don't always get everyone, but I think it's the CERCLA, Com- Comprehensive Environmental Response Liability and Compensation Act, I think. Somebody's... Somebody's going to listen to this podcast, Darren. <laughs> They're going to like, no, that's yeah. not an acronym. But you all get right. the idea, right? So that's it. That's the whole universe of America's federal environmental laws. They were all passed in the decade of the 1970s, every single one of them, 1969 to 1981. And that's it. 
Right. You know, we've had a little bit of movement in the time since we've had the cafe standards, which are air emissions for vehicles. Uh, we've had, you know, some progressive thing, you know, environmental policies that came out of the, uh, you know, Obama administration, like the clean energy plan and things like that. But by and large, that's the whole story of America's environmental laws. And I just told it to you in like three minutes. Right. You did. And so, yeah. And so, like, right, we kind of said, like, OK, there was a counterculture. There was a push there was a reform there was a change and then everybody settled in right and then the 80s yeah. happened and then everybody is all good right and then the 90s it's all good right you know nobody knew about like nobody was talking about climate change nobody was particularly concerned about you know international biodiversity loss and you know things that were happening outside of american soil nobody was particularly concerned with you know perhaps the uh, dangerous, you know, resource extraction and, you know, industrial activities that were happening in our country because they were relegated to low income and systemically oppressed neighborhoods. Um, and it just kind of like all was uh, copacetic business as usual. Well, you know, unfortunately, now climate change has become the, the, the defining issue of our generation. Unfortunately, now we actually are the last uh, male white rhino died in the wild, right? Like functionally extinct. Um, you know, this is something that it, it, the consequences have reemerged so much so that like, yeah, lakes are, ca lakes are catching on fire again, guys. We got to do something, about it, right? You know, right. Um, and that's just kind of like, that's been the kind of the ebb and flow. We're just right, you know, we're, we're heading back on that upswing where, you know, last time we had to do it, uh, you know, it, it really took a, a, a cultural counter movement to get politicians and, and economic leadership to even pay attention to it. Um, and I think that's really what it's taken again. Uh, I, I hope so, because I think there's a lot of positives. I mean, it's our planet. It's our one home. And, you know, I think we should be focused on taking care of it. And I think it comes in many different forms that I think whenever there's money involved and there's politics and agendas, it becomes very difficult to get things done. So hopefully we can be our own answers and our own change for these things more often. And people like yourself putting out good solutions. And I, I think that's what I've really enjoyed about this most is a solution oriented discussion related yeah. to environmentalism. You know? Yeah. It's, it's accessible. It's positive, right? If this is not like, I, I love, the technology. I love the tech industry. I just think it's, it really speaks to me kind of like as a progressive, as an innovator, mm -hmm. as somebody who gets excited by new things, but it's also unbelievably complicated and difficult to access. Right. And so like, yeah. you know, kind of like the, you know, returning to the example of like the vertical gardening. Yeah, absolutely. You can use in a, in a vertical garden, you can grow like an acre of food with like yeah. just a tiny fraction of the water and energy and land use necessary in old unsustainable agricultural technology. Right. But, you know, that uh, that's kind of an example of like those far away kind of things where people like people, you know, it's it you have to even have a conversation with somebody for before they even start thinking about the environmental impacts of their food choices. Right. Right. And so, you know, the, it, the, that far away, like that distance, um, that's really what I'm trying to bridge. Right. Like that's really where I feel like my my role is in the world of environmental activism is, you know, to connect people who are just trying to live and survive and be happy and healthy with the technological tools that will help them do that while also 
you know, addressing our larger environmental issues that are really kind of like, you know, a, a side effect of these old systems and these old technologies that we created 100 years ago with the first industrial revolution that really are just, you know, dirtying up the place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Well, Samantha, thank you so much. It's This was a very enlightening conversation and all the information. I love information-rich uh, conversations that really educate people. I feel more educated about it, and I, I'm sure the listeners will too. So thank you so much for your time. It has been a sincere pleasure, Darian. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you know, thank you so much for doing all the hard work of hosting this podcast. It's, you know, it's, it's certainly not easy. It's been lovely being a guest and honored to participate. And I would love to come back, you know, anything that yes. you've got, you know, any, I guess, you know, I've, I'm sort of like in this kind of, I'm bridging this gap between like sort of like the enterprise entrepreneurship world with my technical writing and then, you know, like the authorship and advocacy with my own platform. And so... Um, no shortage of, of engaging conversations to be had, surely. I have an idea, actually. I want to talk to you about it off air right when I stop recording. And okay. I, it'll, be it'll be interesting, I think. We'll, we'll be in touch. <laughs> sure thing. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching, and finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about and it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else it's your daily reminder that there is good in the world even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes so get the donut stay informed it's 100 percent free you can unsubscribe anytime Visit thedonut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. <laughs> wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. <laughs> Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.